Dear brothers and sisters, I pray 3 John verse 2 for us all that in all respects we may prosper and be in good health just as our soul prospers. And may both of those be true, both physical and spiritual well-being. And I pray that when Lord willing, we're able to gather together again soon, that it will be apparent that Acts 4.13 has happened to us, that we have been with Jesus. And we do certainly long to see your faces again and to express God's good, wise design in the church, that is the ecclesia, the New Testament word for church, that is an assembly of saints worshiping together under the banner of our Lord and his love for us. Well, may the Lord use this small meditation through Second Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, which uh, I have tried to record prior to now. I've stopped the recording multiple times because of part sadness in my heart that this isn't the way it's supposed to be and part frustration that uh, every time I I think I'm on a good track of uh, clear thought I get so jumbled and fumbled and I don't even know how to get going again but by God's grace I'm going to take a different approach that I hope will be edifying to those of you who are able to listen um And that approach is going to be part teaching and part preaching. So the first thing I want to do is read the sermon text, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. I then want to give some background from Exodus 32 to 34, which the passage in 2 Corinthians is built upon and argues from. And then I want to deal with the two parts of 2 Corinthians 3. Well, may the Lord help us. After we read the text together, we'll pray for the Lord's blessing. Hear the word of the living God. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is God's Word. Brothers, sisters, pray with me as we ask for God's help.
Father, you are the God of unimaginable glory. And to encounter you is the reason for which we were created, to live in your presence, to enjoy your goodness. But we confess, Father, that we have been so contaminated by sin, both original sin and actual, that we have no right to your presence and that to come on our own merits would mean certain death. So we thank you that you have provided for us the mediator who can shield us with your own righteousness so that as we approach you, we're both purified in Christ and transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. So for your glory, would you use this meditation to be a stimulant to that end in the lives of your people, that we would be a people who pursue and approach and live in the presence of our God. We ask this for the glory of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Paul's continuing his defense of his apostleship. It began in chapter 2, verse 12, and Paul's really laid down three reasons. At the end of chapter 2, the aroma of Christ always uh, emerging from the lives of his people among those who are saved and perishing. This is a, an evidence of his apostleship. And then second, the Corinthians themselves being a living epistle and uh, Paul being a mediator of the, uh, I'm sorry, a minister of the new covenant. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. And then here in this passage, Paul's given really his third defense of his apostleship. And it's a, it's a exposition of Exodus 32 to 34. So before we dive into 2 Corinthians 3 and the two parts that we're going to look at, let me give some background. This will be teachy, uh, but some background of Exodus 32 through 34. That passage and 2 Corinthians 3 are showing us the same basic truth. And that is, brace yourself, the unmediated presence of God will destroy you. That's one side of the coin that we see in Exodus and Corinthians. The unmediated presence of God will kill you. The letter kills. The other side of that coin is that the mediated presence of God will both purify and transform you. The Spirit gives life, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. So the unmediated presence of God will destroy you. The mediated presence of God will purify and transform you. So what's happening in Exodus 32 to 34? Well, let's just kind of breeze through it. In Exodus 32, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of God's covenant commands engraved in stones. They're in Moses' hand. And as soon as he gets down from the mountain, he encounters Israel at the base of the mountain. And what are they doing? Worshiping a golden calf. In Exodus 32, 19, we're told that Moses proceeds to shatter those two stone tablets which actually indicates to us something profound about the Old Covenant. That is, that it was broken from the very beginning. In fact, in Exodus 32.7, God even told Moses before he even went down from the mountain that Israel was worshiping a molten image and that God knew they were an obstinate people. Well, as we know from our Exodus study, these are the same people who were rescued by God from Egypt, from their slavery. They experience the plagues of God's power upon the Egyptians. They experience the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. 
But nevertheless, we're told, Exodus 32 to 34, that they were an obstinate people. That means they were a stiff-necked, hard-hearted. We could say they were people who loved their sin. Well, fast forward again. Those broken tablets shattered all around the feet of Moses because of the people's idolatry and Moses' anger with them. Moses then does something interesting. He intercedes for these people. He prays for them. And that's because foundationally, Moses understood that if God were to destroy them, it would ultimately reflect upon God's character. Because Moses understood that when God made promises to create and sustain the nation of Israel, at that point, the the preservation of God's own honor was at stake in the preservation of these people. So, as I mentioned, Moses intercedes for them. This is Exodus 32.11 through Exodus 33.17. And Paul has this passage in mind again in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, which is why I'm giving this, this uh, background. And what Moses prays for is three things. First, he prays for God to prevent Israel from being destroyed. Second, he cries out for God to graciously keep his promise to lead these people into the promised land. And third, he prays for the greatest of all the graces, the, the most significant of all the prayers. He prays for the presence of God to go with Israel through their journeys and their entrance into the promised land. He wanted the presence of God with the people of God. And that's precisely what he prayed for. But even though we find God graciously granting Moses' request, all three of them, we see that the people remain spiritually obstinate, rebellious, hard-hearted. So just like Paul said in his thesis statement in 2 Corinthians 3, that's verse 6, right before our sermon text for today, Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 3, the letter kills we actually see what he's talking about in Exodus 32, 26 to 28, when 3,000 Israelites died as a direct result of their idolatry. The, the Levites were commanded to just go through with a sword and wipe out all the people who were stuck in their idolatry. So we skip forward in, in Exodus and find that after that episode of the death of the 3,000, the letter kills, we see... Yet the people nevertheless remain stiff-necked, obstinate, hard-hearted against the Lord. Exodus uh, 33, verse 3, teaches us that. Well, that brings us back to the big idea of Exodus chapters 32 to 34, which is the same big idea of 2 Corinthians 3. The unmediated presence of God will destroy you. That's why God said in Exodus 33.3, I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. And two verses later, Exodus 33.5, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Do you see that the unmediated presence of God to a rebellious people equals death? This is serious. That's why in Exodus 32 to 34, the presence of God dwelt outside the camp. 
God dwelt in the tent of meeting, Exodus 33, 7-11. Only Moses could approach God. He represented the truly regenerate Israelites, the faithful remnant who had a tender heart to the Lord. And Moses, on as their representative, was able to go in to the presence of the Lord. But the presence of the Lord didn't dwell among the people. He dwelt in the tent of meeting on the edge of the camp. But in Moses' prayer, we see that he knows that this won't work for the long haul. This can't satisfy the believer. God's people have to have God in our midst. We're not content with God to be over there or near to us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. God's people have to have God. So in Exodus 33, 15 and 16, Moses prayed, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? You hear it, don't you? In that prayer, which is familiar maybe to many or most or all of us, Moses is clearly affirming in the presence of the Lord that the presence of the Lord is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. You may have uh, good theology or Bible verses or religious slogans or experiences or practices, but if you have all that and don't have God, you're missing everything. And Moses knew that. He knew that the presence of God among his people was essential, not an added extra. Without the presence of God in our midst, we're no different than the remainder of the pagan world. One commentator wrote, Moses had no desire to enter the promised land without the God of promise in their midst. Dear ones, this is the issue that Paul's pressing upon the church in Corinth in our text as well. Well, let's conclude this background summary of Exodus 32 to 34 and then turn our attention for a few moments to 2 Corinthians 3. What we find next is in God's gracious response to Moses' intercession, God replaces the first set of tablets a second time. In that encounter with God, Moses' face began to shine with the reflection of the glory of God beaming from Moses' skin, from Moses' face. God's glory was being reflected and shining. But as we saw earlier, the same pattern Present itself again. The obstinate, hard-hearted people cannot endure the presence of God without being destroyed. So, in an act of mercy, in an act of grace, to preserve Israel from being destroyed, Moses veils his face when he speaks to the people, then he unveils his face when he speaks to God. That's Exodus 34, 29 and following. When Moses descends from Sinai with a shining face, the people were told in Exodus 34 actually fear approaching him. It's clear that Israel understood that God's presence mediated to them through Moses would ensure their death. That's why Moses veiled his face. Without this knowledge, we would easily misread, misinterpret, misapply 2 Corinthians 3, and many have done so. I, in fact, am guilty of having done so myself before digging into the Exodus account more deeply and carefully. There is actually no sense in Exodus 34 that Moses 
was pridefully seeking to make Israel think that God's glory was still radiating from his face, even though it was actually fading away. That's not in Exodus 34. And that's actually not what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, 3, 11, and 3, 13. We'll get there in a moment. Even after that covenant renewal found in Exodus 34, and the obvious recognition of God's glory revealed to Moses in that his face was shining, and the people being shielded from the sight of God's glory lest they die, the people nevertheless remained hard-hearted. Exodus 34, 9, God said, uh, Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. So Scott Haifman, whose commentary is just absolutely tremendous on Second Corinthians, said, Moses' veiled mediation of God's glory permits his presence to remain in Israel's midst without destroying her. One more time. Moses' veiled mediation of God's glory, putting a veil on his face, even though it shines with the glory of God, the veil permits God's presence to remain in Israel's midst without destroying her. Have you ever thought about that? When you personally seek to approach God or corporately seek to approach God, do you find yourself ever trembling that you must have a mediator between you and the God of all glory or else you die? Although Israel was preserved by having God's glory shielded, they were also shielded from the positive effects of being able to enter his presence. When they were barred from the presence of God, represented in the veil, represented in the tent of meeting, they were also shielded from enjoying the blessings of encountering God in his glory, namely being purified and transformed. You see, properly enjoyed through the mediatorial work that God has prescribed, when God's presence is properly enjoyed, it both purifies and transforms us. And although Israel wasn't destroyed, they also were, were not able to enjoy the blessings of living in the presence of God. That pattern continues actually throughout Israel's history. All of Moses' ministry continues unfolding the same pattern. But even when Israel enters into the promised land, they're eventually kicked out of there too. Assyria comes and gets Israel, carries them away into captivity in 722 BC. Judah carried away by Babylon in 586 BC because they can't live in the presence of God with a rebellious heart or else you die. As the captivity is happening, and uh, God's rebellious people are being judged. The prophets begin to speak of a time when a new covenant would be established by God himself. This spiritual covenant, not, not a letter out there, but actually taking the stone heart out of the rebellious people and putting in them a tender, fleshy heart sensitive to God, to his presence. And, and God's law written within our hearts and God himself forgiving our sin and abiding with us. Those new covenant promises spoken most eloquently through Jeremiah and Ezekiel 
or what Paul has in mind when he speaks about the new covenant ministry that he's uh, bringing to the Corinthians in, in chapter 3. Well, with that background in mind, let's go to the two parts of uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 7-18. Verses 7-11, through 11, the glory of the new covenant, and verse 12-18, enjoying the glory of the new covenant. Verses 7 through 11 have this uh, how much more line of argumentation. If this, then how much more that? And we see that repeated several times. Verses 7 and 8 have one of those. If the ministry of death meant that the sons of Israel couldn't look at the face of Moses and the glory on his face, how much more? Verse 8, uh, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? The same Pattern shows up again in verse 9. If the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. And then in verse 11, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Well, as we're looking at the connections between the old and the new covenant, we need to understand uh, really that background from Exodus 32 to 34 that I tried to give us a moment ago, um, when Paul refers to the Mosaic Law in verse 7 as the ministry of death, if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, when he, when he calls it the ministry of death, or in verse 6, the letter kills, th that's true in the lives of the people who did not embrace the original intent of the law. The law was never intended to make us righteous or to save. Paul says in plenty of places elsewhere, like Galatians, that the law was given as a tutor, as a schoolmaster designed to lead us to Christ, to point us to the Messiah, the mediator of the covenant, who alone kept the law and fills up all righteousness and grants us access to God's presence in a favorable way. So those in the Old Testament who were truly regenerate um, never looked to the law as the means of their righteousness. They were not right with God on the basis of their law-keeping, but rather on the basis of their looking to the mediatorial work of the coming Messiah who would perfectly keep God's law in their, in their place. So the ministry of death was for those who did not have uh, a regenerate heart and um, access to the favorable presence of God. Well, in verse 8, when Paul's talking about how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory, that's that a fortiori argument, that kind of argument that goes, that's a Latin phrase that means from the stronger, so if this, then that. Um, as Paul makes that argument, he he wants us to, think about what was happening in that Exodus account. So what's Paul's point in verses 7 and 8? It is that the gospel will actually do the same thing to you. Meaning, if you look at the glory of God in the gospel with a hard heart, an obstinate heart, a stiff neck, that does not bend toward the good word of God and His covenant commands that flow from a heart of love to you from God and to God from you, then you'll die as well. Just like Israel couldn't encounter his presence without the consequence of death because of the hardness of their heart, the same is true 
for those who hear of His new covenant promises and love that are accomplished in Christ and remain hard-hearted. Scott Haifman put it well in his commentary, the issue at stake is not a contrast between the law and the gospel, understood as two qualitatively distinct means of salvation. It is neither the law nor the gospel itself that kills or makes alive, but the absence or the presence of the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, Haifman concluded, the gospel also brings death to those who, whose hearts are hardened. The gospel is the line of demarcation, and it will put to death all those who will not yield to the Savior who died in our stead. So don't fall into that age-old trap that the God of the Old Testament was harsh on rebels and the God of the New Testament is you know, all soft on sin. No, the glory of God in the old meant certain death upon evildoers, and therefore they must have been shielded from seeing him, hence Moses' veil. The same thing is true in the New Covenant. Without the Spirit, the gospel will shine the unmediated glory of God upon you and consequently put you to death. Well, as we continue to dig, look at the end of verse 7 where it says this phrase, fading as it was so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. This is one of the most important phrases throughout this chapter. It actually repeats here in verse 7, then verse 11, then again in verse 13. It's the same Greek word, and it's best understood not as something fading away, but something rendered inoperative or ineffective or you know not accomplishing what uh was the design for it for it to accomplish so um that phrase fading as it was uh Scott Haifman says Paul uses the same phrase the same word uh 25 times it's actually only used 27 times in the whole New Testament 25 of those are by Paul and in none of those Haifman says does it mean Fading. So why would it mean so here? And he said, rendered as it is elsewhere, inoperative and ineffective or powerless is the way he argues it should be used here as well, which is actually in accord with Exodus 32 to 34. Haifman said, rendered this way, it is obvious why readers have concluded that Paul uh, radically reinterpret Exodus. Therefore, oh, he's saying when people see uh, this Greek word to be rendered as fading, he's saying that uh, it makes sense why people conclude that Paul's actually reinterpreting Exodus 34 against the original context, for there's no indication in Exodus whatsoever that the glory of Moses' face was fading. Or that Moses veiled himself to hide something from Israel. And I actually don't think that's Paul's intention at all. This word in verse 7, 11, and 13, uh, Haifman said, In no case of Paul's use of this word in the New Testament does it refer to the gradual fading away of some aspect of reality. When read against the backdrop of Exodus 32 to 34, There's no indication that Paul himself was creating a new meaning of the word, that is, to fade away. Thus, there is no need to suggest that here and only here, this Greek word, katargeo, 
means to fade away. So what is Paul's point at the end of verse 7, again in 11, again in 13? His point is that the glory on Moses' face was cut off in regard to its impact. Paul's interpretation remains faithful to the original meaning of Exodus. The veiling of Moses' face there underscores Paul's point that because of Israel's hardened nature, Moses' mediation of the glory of God was a ministry of death to them. The very need itself for Moses' veil manifests God's judgment against the rebellious people. They couldn't see his presence without dying is what's happening. So in support of verse 6, letter kills, spirit gives life. It's clear that the glory of the letter does kill. And that's obvious because Moses, who was the mediator of the letter covenant, had to veil his face. And that's, that's actually consistent with Moses' ministry throughout his entire lifetime. That uh, as a mediator, not only of God's grace, but also God's judgment upon rebellious people. Well, Israel was hard-hearted toward God. And the Old Covenant was rendered inoperative to accomplish its effect of transforming the lives of the people. So Paul naturally then says, how will the ministry of the Spirit, verse 8, fail to be even more with glory? What he's saying is, just like the Old Covenant would put to death, ministry of death, those who encounter God's presence with a hard heart, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit fail to do? the same thing. Even though Paul's ministry did not have the same visible displays of God's presence to the human eye, there weren't uh, shining faces in Paul's experience. However, the effect would be the exact same in the lives of hard-hearted people. It would put to death the presence of God mediated through the new covenant that Paul preached would put to death those who remained hard-hearted. The fact that Christians were in Corinth, alive in Christ, is evidence that the glory of God resided in the ministry of the new covenant that Paul is proclaiming. I believe that's the heart of verses 7 and 8, which is really the foundation of Paul's interpretation of Exodus 32 to 34. So just looking briefly at verses 9 through 11, Paul gives some supporting arguments for what he had laid out in verses 7 and 8. Verse 9 says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more the ministry of righteousness, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Again, the reason the Old Covenant condemned is because of the obstinance of the people. Outside of the faithful remnant who were truly regenerate, Israel could not endure God's glory because they were not righteous by faith. They didn't have the, the covering of the mediatorial work of the Messiah. This is the basis for Paul's reasoning in this passage, verse 9. The reason God can dwell among the New Testament church without destroying them is a result of what he calls the ministry of righteousness, which abounds in glory. That is the cross of Christ that God actually produces in the new covenant, a righteousness in his people, allowing us the necessary shield to approach God without being incinerated by God. This is what Paul means two chapters later when he says, Christ who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, 
that ministry that condemned them because the glory of God was being revealed and they couldn't stand his presence, therefore it was veiled from them. Verse 9, the ministry of righteousness abounds in glory even more so. Verse 10, for indeed what had glory, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Meaning the old covenant is no longer the vehicle through which God is revealing his glory among his people. That's not the way he's showing himself now to those who are his faithful remnant. It has been surpassed by the new covenant. Haifman said that Paul is not saying that the glory of the old covenant pales in comparison to the new, but that the surpassing glory of the new covenant now brings the old covenant to an end. That era has passed and the new covenant has been inaugurated in Christ and will one day soon be consummated when all of the elect are with him forever in unrestricted uh, glory, always mediated to us through Christ, even in the age to come. So, verse 11, Paul supports this argument again when he says, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Again, we run into that word that was used in verse 7, uh, fades away, but it's better understood as Paul uses it elsewhere, meaning inoperative or nullified for if that which is no longer in operation inoperative was with glory much more that which remains is in glory the word remain it's the same word paul uses in places like first corinthians 13 when he says now abide these three faith hope and love uh, which will remain forever uh, these are matters that in paul's view are enduring. There is no end to them. They are, in that sense, eschatological. Paul is saying that the new covenant remains and endures and will endure through endless ages in glory. So the inoperative covenant had the glory of God in it. How much more do you think that the covenant that's going to endure for endless ages remain will have the glory of God in it. So up until this point, 2 Corinthians 3 has worked like this. In verses 4 to 6, Paul has been called to minister the new covenant, which verse 8 is of the Spirit, and in verse 9 is based on God's righteousness that's in the gospel of Christ, and verse 11, which remains forever as the surpassing revelation of the glory of God to his people. So what? What, what do we do with the fact that we have access in Christ to the glory of God? That's verses 12 to 18. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. In verse 12, Paul speaks of that hope that we have in Christ. And that hope, Paul says, produces a, a boldness, a, a confidence in our speech. The hope that Paul's referring to is that in the gospel of Christ, the glory of God is being mediated in the Spirit to His people. Verse 11, Paul's saying, we have access to the glory of God. This is our hope, both now and forevermore, in this remaining, enduring revelation of the glory of God. This is the sad aspect of verse 14. 
those who are without Christ cannot see the glory of God and enjoy His purifying and transforming power. When we see that the gospel of Christ brings us face to face with God in a favorable meeting without fear of death and destruction like Exodus 32 to 34. Even though we are rebels against His law, but ones who have been justified by faith in the Redeemer who kept that law on our behalf, this hope produces in us a plainness and boldness of speech. That's what Paul's saying. We unabashedly declare that all men have access to the God of Sinai. You don't have to fear coming close to Him. You ought to boldly approach Him, confidently come to Him in Christ, our High Priest and Mediator. This glory is readily available to those who will draw near to the God of all glory in Jesus. So in the next few verses, Paul answers the question, well, well, why then doesn't Israel believe Paul's message if he's ministering the new covenant that God promised through Israel's prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel? And the sober answer is that nobody can enjoy the glory of the new covenant if they reject the only one who can actually remove the veil for them to be able to see, to behold God's glory in a purifying and transforming way rather than, uh, if they reject this one, a destructive way. Verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ but to this day, verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. The problem for the Jews of Paul's day, which is the same problem for every unbeliever of our own day as well, is that they did not receive Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to save. The reason the Old Covenant remains veiled when it is read, Paul says, until this very day, verse 14, or verse 15, to this day, is because he says at the end of verse 14, that veil is only removed in Christ. Someone must turn to Jesus as the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, whose flesh was torn so that we could have access to the favorable presence of God through Him, to have our sins forgiven, to have God's honor restored for our law-breaking and our obstinance and our hard-heartedness. Jesus has taken that punishment for our crimes upon Himself at Calvary and has atoned for our guilt and has satisfied God's justice even for our crimes such that he, he, he is such an adequate Redeemer that, that He can forgive sinners even like us and He can bring us into the presence of God favorably, that we can enjoy His glory. That veil is removed in Christ. Paul says very clearly in verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This is the beauty of the Gospel. Turning to the Lord of glory Lord of glory removes every hindrance between you and God. Any impediment between you and a favorable meeting with God, even in His unmitigated glory, His brilliant, beaming 
glorious presence would do you no harm if you would come to Him by turning to the Lord. Like Moses, you too would get to have an unveiled relationship with God. Jesus spoke of this in uh, places like John chapter 5 where He said that people were reading Moses because they thought that in that reading they would find eternal life. But Jesus said, no, it's these that bear witness of me. Moses wrote about me. You have to turn to Christ. Charles Simeon said in the Old Testament, it's one great body, but Christ is the soul that animates it throughout. He is the substance of it. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 14. The veil's removed in Christ. Verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Let's meditate for just a moment on verses 17 and 18 as we draw to a close. Paul, verse 17, is asserting something wonderful. Not only that the Spirit is divine, which is very clear in this text, the Lord is the Spirit, but he is also saying that the same freedom that Moses had to behold God's glory is now available freely to all who are partakers of God's new covenant promises. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, verse 17, there is liberty. There is freedom, meaning there is unhindered access to the glory that Moses encountered in the tent of meeting. That you too can come into the presence chamber of the King of glory. This liberty, this freedom should lead us to many obvious applications. We should barge ourselves through Christ into God's life-giving, purifying, transforming presence. Haifman said that the freedom spoken of here in verse 17 implies a freedom from the veil of hard-heartedness that is unable to enter into the presence of the Lord. Now with a tender heart, now with Christ taking up residence within, the Holy Spirit working from within us, having regenerated us, having bound us in union to Christ, we too get the access into the presence of God that Christ has, that we get to come as close to the throne as Christ is. Which leads to the final verse. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This beholding as in a mirror means an intense gaze. We're told earlier that Israel could not intently gaze on Moses' face, and the word gaze appears repeatedly in this, in this uh, phrase, uh, in this chapter. But here we're told that with unveiled face we behold as in a mirror. This means a concentrated focus on the glory of the Lord. We're told that as we will look upon His glory as Moses would upon the glory of the Lord on Sinai or in the tent of meeting, that if we too, through Christ, in the new covenant promises, would behold the glory of the Lord, we're told that we would experience a progressive transformation. We would be metamorphosed like a caterpillar to a butterfly in the chrysalis where that change takes place, we too, which is the word used here for transformed, we would be 
changed, transformed into the same image that we behold. So the incontrovertible rule of the kingdom of God is that we will become like what we behold. And as we behold God's glory in the face of Christ, in the mirror of His Word, we are changed into the same image progressively. Yes, slowly and not, not, as, uh, not as substantially in each look as we might have liked, but nonetheless we are changed from one degree of glory to the next progressively until one day we see Him face to face and we will be like Him as we see Him who's revealed, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. When He's revealed, we'll see Him as He is and we'll be like Him. And this work comes passively to us, accomplished by the Holy Spirit, the Lord. Simeon said, beholding the glory of God in Christ is now a common privilege to all who believe, but we all with unveiled face. Earlier we're told Moses saw the glory. Moses reflected the glory. But here we're told all of us. This is the new covenant promise. We will not have to teach everyone his neighbor and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me because he's forgiven our sin. He's united us to his son. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the purifying work that Christ applies to sinners who come to him in repentance and faith, that's what we were created for. So that in the forgiveness of our sins, in being united to God in Christ, we would be able to enjoy the glory of God. Our Christ-likeness, this one degree of glory to another, being molded and shaped and transformed into the image of our blessed Redeemer is God's will for us. And the power for this change resides only in beholding the glory of God. No human resolve can accomplish this needed work of transformation. We can't produce this by effort or by Willpower, it's a work that happens to us, but it happens to us as we actively loot the treasure chest, treasure chest of Christ's fullness, available to us in the Word of God. Rick Couple said, by beholding, looking, gazing upon Jesus, the Christian must expect the blessed Holy Spirit to do His promised work of conforming us into the image of Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 to 18 is about. If you encounter the presence of God unmediated, with a rebellious heart, stiff-necked, you must perish. You will be destroyed just like God threatened Israel. But... If you'll come to him through his mediated presence and in the new covenant, the only favorable meeting place between you and God is his son at the cross, his labors at Calvary to lay his life down for his friends, to make us children of God. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. 
If you will meet God in Christ and receive Jesus, then Jesus will become your concierge by the power of the Holy Spirit into the pathway of the Word of God to see the face of God, to behold His glory. The psalmist says, those who look to Him, our faces shine too, don't they? In a different way than Moses, for sure. But nonetheless shine, the psalmist said, those who look to Him were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. As we see Christ in the Word of God and intently gaze upon His glory as 2 Corinthians 3.18 speaks of, by the power of the Holy Spirit as 2 Corinthians 3.17 speaks of, as we've looked to Christ to remove the veil as 2 Corinthians 3.14 and 16 speak of, then, as we behold God's glory, we'll be changed, we'll be transformed. Grace Church, may this be our continual exercise and our great delight until we see God's lovely face. And may we encourage one another to this end more and more and prove ourselves to be true children of God who are imitators of Jesus in looking at the face of our great and glorious King. God bless you.